Hi, and welcome to Strangers on the Internet, a podcast about making online dating work for you. My name is Irene Manta, and I'm a professor at the Maurice A. Dean School of Law at Hofstra University. I'm also a dating coach and a consultant for the dating app industry. And I am Michelle Lang, a senior lecturer in psychology at Christopher Newport University in Virginia and a clinical psychologist in private practice. All views expressed on this podcast are our own and not our employers. Hard to believe, but this is our 50th episode. Woo-hoo. We want to thank all of our loyal listeners for being a part of this. And for this special occasion, Michelle and I would like to take a look at the themes that have struck us the most so far on this podcast journey. Michelle, here we are, our 50th episode. What are some of the themes that stand out for you? Let's just jump right in. Yeah, let's do it. So, you know, it's been a fun experience looking back, reflecting back, thinking about the episodes that we have recorded over this last, what, like year and a half, something like that. And so I came up with a few themes that stood out to me. I know you have some as well. Be curious if any of our listeners have anything they want to weigh in on. But for me, my number one, my first theme that came to mind is that the loneliness epidemic is real. This is something that we talked about with our guest, M.A. Lutkin, and that she really thoughtfully explored in her book, The Lonely Hunter. But I've also seen it referenced not just with respect to dating, you know, um, our government, governments from across the world are acknowledging such a thing as a loneliness epidemic. So it's really something that's impacting people these days, just for reasons that M.A. Lutkin got into in her book. It's just harder making meaningful connections. It's a different world today than the one of generations past. And so people are struggling with essentially the isolation that's so common in modern society. And it's understandable if we're feeling lonely, why people would gravitate towards wanting to remedy that with a romantic connection because romantic connection is individualized attention. It's enjoying the company of another person who is interested in you. It can feel good both emotionally and physically. So it makes a lot of sense. But also, we don't want to fall into the trap of thinking that any romantic connection or even like the potential for a romantic connection is always better than being alone. There's a difference between being alone and being lonely that I think is important for us all to consider. Because dating and relationships can be really rewarding, but they also take time and precious energy. So we want to be intentional about investing that in not just anyone, but rather in people with whom we really do get something in return or as the whole being greater than the sum of its parts where there's really a benefit to it rather than just something that you are throwing your energy at and hoping that you're going to get validation in return. So I think it's about dating under the right circumstances as one possible way to explore remedying loneliness. But I think another thing is to always Keep in mind that dating is not the only way to connect. There's other things you can do if you're feeling lonely as well. Investing in existing friend groups, going out to social events in your local community, and even finding special interest groups online. 
as we talked about with some of our guests, Jane Ash and Damon, with Cerise Lang. Those are also great ways to connect with others and to combat loneliness so that you don't feel like you don't want to get to the position where you think dating is the only way to connect meaningfully with others. But yeah, I mean, I think that's my number one takeaway that we've seen reflected in a lot of our chats over these 50 episodes is just the realness of that loneliness epidemic. Anything to add there? Yeah, no, I think that's very true, first of all. I think there are a lot of people out there who are trying to form connections, and sometimes they're even trying different things, and they're, they're not, like, completely closed-minded, and it, it somehow just doesn't work. And there are, I think, a number of different reasons that we've run into uh, for why that might be happening for people. I mean, one of them is people's kind of personal quirks, let's say, or personal complications. So we've talked to a number of academics that have had to move to different parts of the country, right? And on some level, you could say there's an element of bad luck there. If you perhaps were not able to go to the kind of city where maybe you fit in better or where there were more like-minded people and stuff like that, I mean, sometimes you don't get to be picky with these jobs. So I think there is that. And, and the same is true across a number of professions. It's certainly not only academics. And then also people struggling with a number of things that might be unique to them. But then there are also the broader trends. And there we are seeing, well, coming back to it, the issue of the problems with the male dating pool where, you know, we talked about some articles that have been written about this, right? And where people are really displaying antisocial behavior. And as we've gone over, hashtag not all men and hashtag some women too, right? Because there's only some women that have, you know, behaved in not so great ways. So uh, there's that. And then I also think we haven't talked about this as much, but People are now so used to customizing every experience, right? Like online, you can pick your theme and pick your font and go to the website you want to and play the games you want to play. And on social media, curate, as they like to say, I find that word incredibly pretentious. So I'm uh, saying it a little bit tongue in cheek, curate your social media experience so that you can give the boot to friends who are annoying you, who hold up and, and you know, sometimes they deserve it. I'm not saying there aren't situations where people say just outrageous things and yeah, you're going to have to separate. But other times people have just, I think also just become less tolerant. And so when people were thrown together in various communities, two things were going on. One, these communities were more homogenous in terms of what values they shared and things like that. And there weren't as many choices. It's like, well, you've hit age X, you're going to get married and you're going to have kids. And for some people that was really awful, but some for some people it actually worked out okay or maybe better than today. And we have to acknowledge that as much as I don't want to go back to that society. So now with, with all of these different opportunities, with all these choices, with all this curating, I think people have also become just kind of intolerant and not really willing to give people the benefit of the doubt. And I think that also plays into the lack of the ability to build community in quite the same way. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, I have a feeling because I know what some of my other points are and I 
think I have a little bit of an idea from peeking ahead at what some of yours may be as well, that that's something we're going to be exploring today and that our listeners will have to think about is that line between you want to be tolerant enough, like play nice with others, but also to be able to draw lines where appropriate, where things feel like they aren't safe or comfortable or respectful, but not just to draw lines left and right all the time. And because if you can't tolerate anything other than exactly what you want, then you are going to wind up lonely. But there's also a value to being able to draw certain kinds of lines like the ones I had mentioned and, you know, to find somebody who you're truly compatible with. Well, and that's the thing. I think it's that clash, right? It's that clash between, let's say you are a single woman, which is an experience you and I have had, so we can speak to that, right? You're a single woman and you're dealing with this particular male pool and there are some things that are truly not okay there. And then you have reasons to be worried the next time someone shows up that behaves in ways that are reminiscent in any way of just sort of bad experiences you might have had. And so there are reasons to be worried. And I'm going to throw in here one of one of my themes, which is like, there is a real physical danger to dating for women. And I knew that. I've written about that. But even though I, I knew it, some of the scenarios that we've encountered, both in terms of people we've spoken to and the articles we've read during this time that we've worked on this podcast together, I mean, some of them never cease to amaze me, just the creativity of some of the wrongdoers. And, and of course, it's not just physical dangers, it's also the financial abuse that we've seen. I mean, we, we talked to one of the victims of the Tinder swindler, Cecilia Fjellhoy, and, and you're just wondering, like, who comes up with stuff like that? Like the Tinder swindler, like, who is this entitled and, and mean and awful? And, and, and we've had other scenarios like that, too, involving, like, stalking and just different really weird ways of, of behaving around someone and scaring someone and intimidating someone. And so it's, it's really difficult to thread the needle between remaining open and wanting to meet people, but also recognizing that there's a lot of bad stuff that can happen. And so, yeah, you're going to have to do some serious vetting at the same time. And I think it's really hard to walk that line. Yeah. And so I do appreciate like your point. So one of your points is the dangers of dating. And, you know, what you said about it like how some of the situations you think you've seen it all and then somebody comes up with something else. I mean, I've definitely had that experience where like in hearing people's stories and not even just with dating, like there's been other times in life, like sometimes I think in the political realm when I'm like, just when I thought things couldn't get any more ridiculous. But but I have seen it with dating too. It's interesting because I guess my mind has like blocked out a lot of those creative attempts probably for self-preservation and wanting to believe in the good of the world. Like, I'm glad that none are immediately coming to mind for me of like some of the creative ways that people look to be dangerous. I easily can think of some of the more standard ones. And, you know, so like when somebody catfishes, when they use a fake picture to draw you into believing that they are a certain person, and it's not always for the purpose of conning you out of money, although 
these days. Often it is, but it's for other reasons too. They are maybe wanting to connect on some level, but like on a selfish level where they want to take something to have your attention, but they're not being real about who they are. And even in situations like that, even though there may be no obvious physical danger that can emerge from it, I think something that's also important, maybe especially for men who are dating women to realize, and I'm sure it can apply in other areas as well, but we've talked about how if a woman feels vibes of, I'm not sure if this is trustworthy or if I should trust this situation, then we as women have to wonder about what other kinds of danger might I be in. We have to be aware of the possibility of physical danger, even if Right now, the warning signs aren't about a physical danger. They're more about untrustworthiness or something like that. And I think what we've seen, what we've discussed in some of our episodes is sometimes men don't fully understand or appreciate that because from their worldview, they don't view physical danger as as a likely threat to them so much of the time. Like I'm thinking of the time you had mentioned that you had gone on a date and told somebody you snapped a photo of their license plate and said it to a friend. And he was so offended by that, that you would do something like that because he hadn't given you a reason to believe he was dangerous. But, you know, having appreciation for the collective experiences where this situation might represent danger easily could. And we're not going to give absolute strangers the benefit of the doubt And we have heard others and perhaps had our own past instances where we did trust somebody to our detriment or where we've heard of bad things happening to others who have done that. And so it's not even only the creative ways of being physically dangerous to daters out there, but it's also the potential for it that that people have to be aware of and that I think women often have to be aware of literally to protect their lives, to try to avoid those situations. But men also need to be aware of to understand the fears that, especially if it's women they're dating on the other end, have to deal with out there in the world and to not take that personally. You know, it's funny. Just in the last couple of days, I was thinking, again, it's not the first time I think about this, but that a lot of the men that I consider the closest, like closest friends and stuff like that, are men who are, let's say, above average critical of other men. And <laughs> they themselves say things like, oh, yeah, like, you know, this such and such is like problematic male behavior. And again, we're understanding we're not talking about everybody, right? But that just talking trends and that they're noticing that and processing it and open to hearing about new such trends or patterns. And so... I think there's, you know, there's something there. And and it's not like we as women can't also notice. And we have, in fact, pointed out you and I in several previous episodes that we're not fans of women who do the thing of like expecting an expensive dinner for the first date or, you know, saying things like you're the prize and, and things like that, or like the woman's the prize and the man isn't. And, and so it, it's not like we're like, oh, women, they do everything in a way that's awesome. But again, you and I also don't feel criticized if somebody says, I think it's problematic if women expect an expensive dinner on the first date, because 
you and I know we don't do that. Whereas there seem to be a lot of men who it was immediate reaction if they hear something bad that like a lot of men do is like, well, I don't do that. So therefore, I don't know, therefore we shouldn't talk about it or therefore it shouldn't affect how the heuristics you might apply to me. It's like, yeah, actually it, it should. So I, I do think like, despite what I said earlier about people needing to be more tolerant to create community, I don't think that applies to signs of danger. That's not, that is not what is standing in the way of people building community. Like that, that is something that I really believe people, especially people who are more physically vulnerable should be really ruthless about and cannot take chances with. Yeah. So it seems like a key takeaway you want for our listeners to have is don't take chances with your physical safety. Is there anything else? Like I said, you know, I kind of block out some of the more creative bad behaviors I've heard, but are there any that come to mind for you or anything you would want to make sure that our listeners are hearing as you reflect back on the dangers of dating? You know, when I was using dating apps back in 2016, 2017, I did not do all of the things yet that we have recommended that our listeners do. I mean, I learned a lot afterwards and like over the years in my readings, through my research, through the experiences of other people and some things I look back now and I'm like, what was I thinking? I also do think that things are getting more and more and more dangerous, unfortunately. So in that sense, I do think people have to be more careful today, perhaps than back then. But I'll give you an example. Well, and, and here, what I, the example I'm about to give you also shows you like trying to mediate between different problems. So because so many people are flaky, I tended to try and have first dates in my neighborhood. Because this way, if somebody didn't show up or canceled at the last second, it wasn't this big of a deal. Look, I'm a busy person. Like I have time to be sitting around and they don't want to be sitting around bars doing nothing. Uh, and so afterwards, I did often let the person walk me home, not take me home, walk me home. And now I'm like, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't want them to know my address that early on, et cetera. Right. So I would just tell yeah. them like, okay, let's just say goodbye here. And then, you know, and then I would make sure they're not following me. But, but that's the kind of thing where we've now seen all sorts of weirdness, you know, resulting in stalking and things like that coming from men figuring out that kind of information about women. No, look, if somebody really, really wanted to figure out where I live, I'm sure they would find some way to do it. But you do want to make it such that you don't make it easy for people because uh, there are many bad actors that actually do give up uh, out of laziness. Like they're not that committed to acting badly. And so you don't want to kind of hand it to them on a silver platter. And, and so that's just one, you know, that's just one example of something that I didn't even, didn't realize. Also, I did not thoroughly Google everybody before a first date. I did not demand last names before a first date. I would do these things now. Yeah. And and when I did Google people, remember, I did discover a couple of weird things here and there, right? And now I might pay for a background check service that, you know, 
where you can do a little bit more of a thorough check with the caveat that not everything is going to be listed there the person might have done, but I think it's better than nothing. So I don't know. I mean, I think as we've gone on this journey, I myself have learned more, learned more from our guests and, and from the research and things like that where I think you just have to go into it clear-eyed and say, yes, this is dangerous. Yes, I'm going to take all the measures that I can. And no, if something bad still happens, it wasn't my fault. It is always the fault. of, And I want to be very clear on that because whenever we give advice on safety, this should not turn into blaming the victim. It's not like, oh, if someone didn't do a background check, well, clearly they deserve to be sexually assaulted. Absolutely not. Uh, but So if something bad does happen, whether you took few measures or many measures, it wasn't your fault. Yeah, I think that's super important. We All we can do is try to avail ourselves of the resources available, but you know, not everything's gonna show up there. And regardless, if we didn't know these resources existed, or things like that. It's Of course, it's always the fault of the person who does the bad thing. But it is, which is, I think, a segue into another point I want to talk about. It is our responsibility to do what we can to protect our safety, acknowledging that even our best efforts do not guarantee us safety. And that always, if somebody acts in a unsafe, dangerous, inappropriate way, that is their fault. So thank you for clarifying that. You know, it brings me to another one of my takeaways. My second takeaway that I came up with is the state of the apps, because I think that's like the apps are what we had in mind when we started this podcast. That was primarily what it was going to be about. And that's what our first episodes were about, the dating apps. We've learned so much about not only the dating apps, but other ways that technology, social media can be used in a dating context. And then also we're seeing some retreat from the apps. And I think it's well-founded, to be honest with you, from what I have heard from our guests, you know, like you, I haven't been active on the apps in several years, last active in 2020, um, I think it was. And so I've learned, though, from our guests about the current state of things, and it does just seem like the apps are not in a great place right now. You know, my own experiences, most recently and briefly in 2020, and then other than that, in like the 20-teens, have been largely positive experiences. I had a good time on the apps more often than not, but I'm willing to concede that the landscape has changed some. And Maybe I think it's changed significantly since when I first ventured onto the apps, which was actually like the 20 odds. So while I've had positive experiences and while I know people who have, I mean, I had a positive experience in 2020. That's where I met my current boyfriend. I'm, you know, very happy in that relationship. But but there are some downsides, too, that are really important to acknowledge. Like, I get why people want to use the apps. It makes perfect sense to me as an introvert. Gosh, what a game changer, because I don't like going out and doing stuff in public with people I don't already know. And so for introverts, it's really fantastic to have this opportunity. Also, just that idea of the accessibility to people you may not have otherwise met just in your day-to-day -day life. Certainly as an introvert, I was going to be limited in that. But also, you know, I had a long-term relationship with somebody I met through the apps who lived like an hour and some change away from me. I definitely would have never met him in my day-to-day -day life, no matter how much I was going out and about. But I was able to meet him through the apps and we had, you know, a great relationship because of it. And 
So I think the accessibility to cast a broader net that the apps offer, there's definitely some benefits to them. But we've learned from guest Nancy Joe Sales, for one, and from other guests that we've talked to about how it benefits the publicly traded app conglomerate if you don't find everlasting love. They want you coming back to the apps. They want you to have a good enough experience that you talk positively about it that you would want to come back. But if you find everlasting love, then you're not a repeat customer. And I think it's important to understand from the business perspective. Again, many of the apps belong to the same business and the match group. And not every app is owned by them, I don't think. But Anytime that a company is publicly traded, that means they have shareholders as well. Now it's a it's a business more than it is anything else. And so we've learned from Nancy Joe Sales, there's a lot more the apps could be doing, but are choosing not to in terms of safety features and safeguards against con people. And this is because they've done the business analysis on it. The return on investment doesn't seem as good to them. You know, some also allow for abusive behavior, such as, if you match with somebody and then you decide you don't want to see them anymore, it didn't work out. And so you very politely let them know, you know, best of luck to you. I don't think this is going to be a match. There's nothing that prevents them, if they're a vindictive person, from making a false report about you to the app. And we've heard so many cases of exactly that happening where a user of the app doesn't actually do anything wrong. They just talk to somebody or go on a date with somebody who they decide that they don't want to see anymore, politely let that person know. But out of spite, that person reports them to the app and says they've done something wrong. And the app's response tends to be to ban you for forever with no explanation of what was said and no opportunity for recourse. And so, you know, the fact that the apps allow something like that to go on, that encourages or at least allows for abusive behavior when they could not do that. You know, the experts we've talked to, again, Nancy Jo Sales and Brenner Fassell come to mind, seem to be of the impression that the powers that be at the dating app companies, but also even in law enforcement, where we may also go to seek protection and support against bad actors we've met on the dating apps, that these powers that be are not sufficiently motivated to build in or enforce further safety standards. And so that leaves the onus on grassroots organizations, which are primarily local at this point, and to individuals. As we were talking about before, it's up to you to educate and to protect yourself. And the belief that the apps will do this for you would be a misfounded belief. So as far as next steps, where do we go from here? You know, I think an important takeaway is if you are going to use the apps at this point, knowing all that we know, it's just important to go in eyes wide open to these concerns. It's important to educate yourself of the dangers that are out there and take them seriously. Put your own safeguards in place. Don't assume that bad things won't happen to you. And also, just to be clear, most bad experiences people have on the apps aren't dangerous. Most just suck. They're unpleasant. But you want to have safeguards for that too, which is mostly is just don't get your hopes up too high, but keep your standards high because that means less interactions with people who are likely to disappoint you. But that being said, these are strangers. You do not know them well enough to know for sure that they won't disappoint you, that they won't do something that's hurtful. So I think go in knowing of the weaknesses with the apps and just behave accordingly. And then I would say another next step that I'm particularly excited about is just kind of to see 
what will evolve next to answer the call in the ways that these dating apps are clearly lacking. You know, I think I've started hearing about speed dating, like local speed dating events again, which is kind of cool. I missed that window where speed dating was a big thing. I was in a relationship at the time in like the aughts when people were doing that. I always thought that sounded really cool. So it's neat to see that maybe making an appearance, people venturing back out into the wild and seeing who they can meet just out and about. I'm really curious to see what will emerge next to address these issues that that are present with the apps. Yeah, I mean, there's so much there. I mean, one thing I yeah. want to say about keeping standards high is keep your standards high about the things that matter, mm-hmm. not about looks. No, yeah. <laughs> right. That, that, that's the thing. And oh, you know, there are a couple of things that I didn't even get to talk to you about yet that sort of came across my desk like just in the last couple of hours. One, one was a study about this really goes together with what you just said one was a study about men and women and their different reactions to seeing just an image of someone versus an image and text okay and when like profile text because you know there are all these empty profiles too and it turns out that for women on average they're being text increases their attractiveness ratings of the other person. That's not really shocking. But apparently for men, their being text decreases attractiveness ratings. And you know, the, the authors of the study, uh, if I if I read it correctly, they, they didn't really, uh, I, I think they didn't want to go off on a limb in terms of, you know, this is like a serious research article, et cetera, that's published. They didn't want to go out on a limb, right? But I can go out on a limb because this is a podcast, right? And look, I think ultimately the men who did that probably were primarily interested in this person on some level as object. And that's why even, even something positive about the person is not necessarily a good thing. Or maybe they found a description about, maybe it was something like, you know, I'd have to look up the details of the study, but any description about career might be threatening or might be something that's inconvenient to them. So that that's a problem. Hello. Like <laughs> if you're one of the people in that study or someone would do that, if you realize that about yourself, that this is a real problem and this is a real bummer. The other thing I just read about is... So apparently, as part of this whole trend of AI becoming more and more important in dating, some apps now are playing with the idea of your having an interaction online with the other person's avatar first before talking to the actual person. They're also playing with the avatars just talking to each other. But that, that doesn't really worked out so well. And apparently it's all very stilted and there's not really like any flirtation and banter and stuff like that, right? But this idea, this is sort of like the opposite, I guess, of what you're saying. Like this is sort of people really outsourcing their dating to, to this online world. And look, if the technology was advanced enough, maybe it would work, but we're clearly not there. And so that said, maybe, maybe there is hope in the sense that there are apps who just in terms of thinking about market forces might want to compete with match by actually creating better matches 
right? Because that is clearly the way yeah. that you would win out or would have a chance of competing against match, right? And so we might be seeing something there. And one last thing I want to say is this. Despite it all, right, the, the, I think the attraction of the apps remains this. It only has to work once. You can have bad experiences for months, for years, but in some sense, you know, it can all be made up for to a point, right? If you protect yourself and you don't get too unlucky with the physical dangers, et cetera, et cetera. But it might all be worth it for the chance to meet that one. And I'm not saying the one yeah. in terms of a soulmates, but just a great person with whom you can have a great relationship. And so you might just have to sort of like separate the wheat from the chaff, but sometimes the wheat is really, really worth it still. So I don't know. It really will be interesting to see which way this goes. Yeah, absolutely. What else do you have? What's another one of your takeaways? Retrospectives. This one is kind of related, so we don't have to spend too much time on it. But uh, we've talked now about physical dangers, financial abuse. But I also do want to make it a point of bringing up emotional abuse. We've talked, and I think there was good reason for that, we've talked quite a bit about how to detect narcissists. And these are people who really can destroy somebody's life and that is even more true if you get to the point of having children with that person because then with the way that the legal system is currently built and you know we we had amy polacco come talk about her work as a divorce coach uh, and we we've talked to to others about this topic you can't separate yourself most of the time from the narcissist. And you don't have many friends in that situation. You can't separate yourself from the narcissist if you share custody with that person, if you share any sort of joint decision-making. And all of this stuff starts at the dating stage, right? Like not ending up in that situation because that can be a special hell of its own. And so that is something that I think generally emotional abuse is something we need to talk about more coercive control is something we need to talk about more in our culture and the legal system is just starting to recognize it in some places in europe we're also seeing that slowly arise great britain etc where there is uh you know that old saying doesn't always go about you know sticks and stones right it's not just that that can break you like words and and things like that and nonviolent actions can really, really end up harming people. And you see people, some of the victims of narcissistic abuse falling into depression, addiction, suicidal behavior, because there's just no way out. And that is horrendous. And that's something that I think we as a culture have a duty to, to change throughout societally and legally. Yeah, I think that's right. And something else I think is concerning around this idea is in some pockets, there is a culture of acceptance around emotional abuse and narcissistic abuse. You know, some people, even friends, and and certainly I've seen it in some of the social media sites where people might post for dating advice. You know, there's well-meaning. I have no doubt they're well-meaning, but they are strangers and we don't know their own history. But people will readily volunteer advice. So if somebody might post to ask about a certain behavior, hey, I've been dating somebody, they did this, it's making me feel this kind of way, is this a red flag? You know, there's going to be some people who, some people who think everything's a red flag and some people who tell you that. But if you 
if you really like somebody and you're hoping that the answer is going to be no, you're hoping that somebody's going to say this isn't a big deal. Again, maybe all it takes is one person or two who tell you, no, no, I think that's fine for you to maybe write off the other advice that people are giving you. And, and we just see that. We see people who will advise excusing away concerning behaviors, abusive behaviors, or saying, well, let's not jump to a negative conclusion about that. We need more information. Has this only happened the once? You know, things like that. And we just don't know. Does that reflect that own person's own unhealthy tolerance for being mistreated by others. So often, we we may not mean to, but if we accept unhealthy behavior ourselves, we see it as normal and then we normalize it for others rather than encourage them to get out of the situation. And so I, I do see that sometimes. Certainly there are the people who say, no, you should always run. And it's easy to write off those people when it seems like they never advise staying, when they always think everything's a red flag. But the opposite is also concerning. People who will excuse away anything. And I just think it's important, certainly if you're asking for advice amongst a forum of strangers, to understand these people aren't experts at this. They are just volunteering from their own possibly flawed perspectives or life experiences. And also, you know, even within your friend group or well-meaning people in your life, they may have their own limitations that that cause them to not give good advice in these kind of situations. I mean, for me, I think the biggest point I would enforce here is listen to your instincts. If your instinct tells you it doesn't feel right, that something's wrong, that you are uncomfortable, I think that's more important than what anyone else is going to tell you about what you should or should not tolerate. It's so tough because, you know, I've seen people make posts that, that start like this. Like they'll have their story and then they'll be like, look, don't tell me to break up. I need to know how to deal with this situation. So, so you, you've already, as the advice giver, you've already kind of got your hands tied behind your back, right? Because the advice you actually want to give you, you can't. And sometimes people are brave enough to say, well, I'm sorry to tell you, but like, that is the only answer. Like you are being abused, et cetera, or your children are being abused or both of you are being abused. And so... I think, look, a part of this we've talked about is our culture's obsession with like, you know, love vanquishes all and blah, blah, blah. And if you really love the narcissist, there's got to be a way to fix him, right? Fixing bad boys. I mean, this is all stuff, you know, I grew up in the 80s and 90s. Like, (laughs) this is all stuff we've been indoctrinated with our whole lives. And no, you can't fix those people and you should get out. And the sooner the better, like it's, there's no fixing that. If somebody is regularly gaslighting you, there is no fixing that. This person is not going to change. If somebody is habitually mean to you, habitually emotionally abuses you, habitually doesn't care if you're crying and, and, and saying, look, I'm really hurt by what you said, or I don't like your jokes i think they're mean and just just regularly disrespects that over and over you have to get out you are better off alone than with somebody who keeps chipping away at your sense of self so yeah i i think we really need to do a better job teaching children already about this kind of abuse and teenagers and and not sending them out i feel like People just in our generation, they just assumed we would figure out this dating thing and this marriage thing. And like, we 
didn't really get that much advice, right? Like sex ed in schools was very mechanistic. It's like, okay, here's a condom, here's a pill, et cetera. It, it, it wasn't much time spent. I don't know if that was your experience as well, but it just wasn't yeah. much time spent on what makes for a good relationship. Let's yeah. talk about consent in meaningful ways. Let's talk about emotional caretaking. Let's talk. And, and now we're also getting into the vision of labor and emotional labor and mental labor and all of these kinds of themes. Some of those terms, we weren't even familiar with them when we were children or teenagers. So I think there's a lot of education. And, and I know you want to talk about also about some of the people that are doing that educating and that, you know, trying to advance society. I do. That was my third point. I do want to acknowledge how inspiring it has been participating in this podcast that we've had the opportunity to speak to so many guests who are out there doing good and who are excited to share it. Amber and Athena from the XYZ Undercover podcast come to mind, Anna Rowe and Cecilia Fielhoy. Uh, John Schinnerer, some examples that come to mind right away that we've spoke with, but honestly, like all of our guests. It has been so inspiring to hear what they're each doing, driven by just wanting to help people find meaningful connection with others and to protect people from harm. These people who I've mentioned, these guests who I've mentioned, I mean, they are selflessly devoting their time, energy, and knowledge to help others in this challenging landscape where we all get it. People wanna find their happiness, their meaningful connection, but we wanna be protected from harm along the way. And so I'm just so inspired, not only by our guests, but also shout out to the online communities that exist for the purposes of outing bad actors on the dating scene and serving as a source of support for the other singles out there. I just see the good work people are doing and I encourage you to, Take advantage of the offerings that people are putting out there. Belong to some of these groups. Check out some of these podcasts I had mentioned. Check out the work of some of our podcast guests. But it is really inspiring to see that where there are problems out there, there are people who are rising to the occasion and saying, you know, here's what I can do to help. And I'm going to do that. Another person I want to mention, I mean, there, there have been so many, but another one that I want to mention is Marianne Franks and all of the work she's been doing on non-consensual pornography legislation. It has made a huge difference and she has put herself at personal risk. She has had all the online threats and all the trolling and all the insults and all of that garbage that she has had to wade through for the benefit of all of us, right? And, and you're right. I mean, and, and that's really also one of the things that kind of keeps us going, right, is the thought that, you know what, we are trying to contribute our piece to all this, to to give advice, to help out people, individuals who might come on the show and we talk about their lives and, and all that, or people who are, are just listening and maybe have never been in touch with us personally, but still feel like they're, they're getting something from, uh, from our show. And yeah, I also want to add here, again, thinking about these societal trends, look, I have noticed a pretty significant chasm. Also, when we post the episode sometimes and conversations are going, there's a chasm between people who have experienced online dating versus those who haven't. And 
this is really where the risk of victim blaming comes in again, right? There, there can easily be an impression on the part of those who haven't done it that they would do a better job or they would have done a better job. And you cannot know that until you've been kind of in the thick of it and you have seen the incredibly abusive behavior of some and just the disrespectful behavior. Like you don't know what it's like to be ghosted over and over. It's really disheartening and, and it's happening a lot more now than when I was online dating, right? Like, and it was already happening then, but it's gotten so much worse from what we're hearing. Yeah. And I can only imagine, like it was bad enough then. So it, I, I really do think you, you have to sort of listen to the people who are doing it just, you know, to, to get an impression. And it's really, it's really hard out there. And if you can help your single friends, if you can make introductions, I'm thinking here of Ali Goldberg, who, who started that entire right sort of matchmaking slash comedy show around this idea of, hey, like, let's, you know, let's connect our friends or let's find good people that might be suited for each other. And, and I think that's where, you know, and also if you're going to criticize people for going on the apps, let's say it's like, okay, well, what's the alternative? What's your suggestion? What do you think this person should be doing? Because you know what telling like, I don't know the 40 year old, well, you need to go back in time 20 years and meet someone good in college. That's not useful advice. And you have to keep in mind that if you are, let's say you've never been divorced and you've, not had horrible experiences and you've just been with your spouse forever and ever okay you know what you also got lucky it's not only because you're a special wonderful person although you very well might be but it, there was also luck involved because you do not know who someone is going to turn out to be after a couple of years of living together you don't truly know you michelle you and i give advice on like red flags and things to pay attention to but at the end of the day there is no crystal ball and so i really really hope if one of the things that I really hope people will take away from our show once they've heard the stories of individuals here is to develop compassion for those who were not so lucky. I think that's absolutely right. I just fully agree with you on that point. You know, it kind of reminds me of, I think you posted an article about this recently about the percent of people who believe they could successfully land a plane if the pilot, if something had happened to the pilot and you were just a passenger with no piloting experience and the, the numbers seem high. <laughs> Seems like people overestimate their ability to do that or like that story from several years ago about Marky Mark who believed that if he had been on a flight that terrorists had taken over, he would have been able to subdue the terrorists and save the day like it's an action movie. And, you know, I think it's that same kind of idea that applies here. People tend to probably overestimate their sense of their abilities and whether it's as glaring as, okay, what was it like? <laughs> what was it, like between 60 and 80%, something like that, of people who believe they could successfully land a plane? It was like, it was a third overall, but it was half of men. Okay. Yeah, it's just, it's <laughs> a high huge. number. It's, it's it was a, a high huge number. number. It was a huge number. And, you know, I'm sure you've seen examples in your own life, and this is to any of our listeners, of where people overestimate their abilities in something. Why might that not also apply to the dating world? So like you said, just have compassion because what we've learned from talking to our guests and if you've listened to any of their podcasts or the other work that they've done or in the case of Cecilia, uh, watch the Tinder Swindler documentary, a lot of the times these con men type target 
intelligent people and they target caring people too. It's not that the reason that their cons work are because they're dealing with a bunch of not smart, uncritical people. It's just that the con people are that good at what they do and they're experienced at it too. So, so I do think it's really important, as you said, if you haven't walked in a person's shoes to not be so quick to judge what it's like. You know what you said, I really like the, the parallel you drew here between the, the plain thing and, and views on dating, because I, I think that's absolutely right. People just, gen and we know, I mean, we know that from studies on intelligence that people, what is it, something like 80% of people think they're smarter than average. It is ridiculous <laughs> stuff like that, yeah. right? And, and so uh, there have been studies on judges where like the lots of judges think they're less racist than the average judge. And again, it's some very large number that's way above 50 percent that thinks that and, and it just comes up over and over and over again and and i was listening to this podcast episode uh by um it was the podcast culty about um well cults and one of the hosts said if you think this would never happen to you like you've already got a problem like you, you're basically already at risk of falling into some sort of like called because you you are not showing awareness of how dangerous they are and how they can, like you said, tr trick smart people. That's what con men do. And I'm going to throw cults into that same general category. Yeah. And there is often a financial aspect they're also involved. And so, yeah, I really think people should sort of, you know, sit back and especially if they're seeing these trends, hey, like all my friends or especially all my female friends who use dating apps are complaining about them. Like, why do I think I would know better or do better or, you know, et cetera. So as we sort of move towards some of our kind of final points, so I know you want to say a few things about, you know, when might you want to date and when might it not be such a good idea? Yeah, I would say that's my final point. Not to say there weren't other takeaways, but I really tried to pare it down to just a few each. And as you can see, it's taking us plenty of time to discuss those. So my final point is what I've taken away is there are times for dating and times where that's not what's in your best interest to do. And I really already said pretty much what I want to about this, but I do think it's its own point. So it deserves a little bit of its own attention. Ultimately, just again to reiterate that dating requires time and effort, as well as likely some level of financial commitment, as we talked about with Cerise Lang, and I'm sure has come up at other points too. You know, if you're not in a good place in your life to invest in those things, time, effort, finances, in what, if we're being honest, is a risky venture, dating. It's not only okay, but probably for the best to hold off until a time in which you are able to invest in that kind of way. Definitely do not go into dating with expectations for anyone else because they don't know you. They are strangers on the internet. And the most that the good ones out there owe you is basic decency. But know that the selfish, the emotionally stunted, and the con people out there can't even be counted on to give you that. You need to understand that putting yourself out there in the dating market is definitely a risk. And hopefully, if you play your hands smartly, listen to your instincts at all times, and have some luck on your side, hopefully it will net rewarding experiences. But you need to understand that's not a guarantee. So you want to be in the right headspace if this is something that you're going to invest your time, energy, and money into. And if it's not a good time, that's okay. When you're not dating, 
There are so many other ways to find fulfillment. So look into those. I mean, I think a couple key ones that come to mind are spending time on your hobbies, even if it's like developing or exploring a new hobby or making new friends or investing in time with your existing friends, I think would be some great ways to spend your time to find fulfillment. It does not have to be in dating. So that's my final point. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's right, because you don't want to date at a time when you're vulnerable, whether emotionally or financially, and someone can really take advantage of you in a way that might not have happened uh, at a different time in your life. And, you know, this actually also segues into my final point, which is related, which is, I do think, and Amy Lutkin talked about this, we have this societal separation between single people and couples. And that's problematic because it raises the stakes in finding a partner in what is already a very complex and problematic landscape. So people become closed in on their spouse and kids, or you know, even if they're not married, like their, their partner, and they no longer feel responsible toward others. And this is really problematic. I find this problematic even being in a couple, like seeing friends disappear because, you know, whatever, they're married now or they're partnered or they have kids. And okay, I mean, you've got to be tolerant too. Like, of course, if someone just had a baby yesterday, you can have the same expectations from them. But, but beyond that, like people who are just like not in touch anymore, disappear from your life or just not reliable anymore. Yeah. It's, it's really problematic. It's also problematic for them because if they ever... God forbid, like get divorced or something happens in their lives or they need help for some other reason, all of a sudden they might have lost all their friends, right? Unless someone takes pity because they've shown themselves to not be such a great friend. And I really, look, I'm sure we've all been guilty of falling down some infatuation spiral and, and sort of disappearing for a while. But if you're seeing that you're doing this long-term, if you look around, I mean, it really anyone who's coupled should think about that now. Who are my friends? Who am I here for outside of my family? And if you can't come up with anybody or not more than a very small number of people, you are doing society a disservice. I mean, maybe I'm sounding harsh right now, but you know, like it, it's just, it's not enough. It's just not good enough. And, and you're really going to have to think about your time management skills and why you're doing this and, you know, try to include at least one or two single people in your circle that you can help. I mean, you talked, Michelle, about your neighbor who maybe helped you out with some, you know, kind of like manual labor type issues, yeah. right? With some advice with that. And I mean, really think about like, is, is there a neighbor? Is there someone who lost a spouse, whether to divorce or death? Or is there someone who has always been single and maybe something's difficult for them? Maybe offer them your help. So I do think that little things can go a long way. And also a lot of single people would feel less invisible. And I'm going to add, I think fewer people would remain in abusive relationships. We've touched on this in our episode yes. about the difficulties of single life. But I do think fewer people would stay in um, difficult overly problematic relationships if they knew that if they get out of that relationship, other people will be there for them and will kind of help to fill in those gaps and, and help keep them going with the, the practical things they need and, and with the emotional needs that they might have. So, you know, step up, people. <laughs> yeah, be good, peeps. 
Well, we want to thank all of our listeners uh, again, and also all of our wonderful guests that have been on this show. We know it's been a, a time commitment for a lot of people to come on the show and share their experiences and, and that at times it was emotionally harrowing. So we really appreciate everything everybody has done. We hope that those of you who are listening to our podcast will continue recommending us to other people. That's really the best way that the podcast grows. And so if you enjoy our work, please do tell others about it and, you know, you can make a contribution either by giving us a, a good review or by giving us five stars or by making a financial contribution on coffee.com to at swipe strangers and that's ko-fi.com that's also very helpful because there are a number of financial costs that are involved in running this podcast and we love doing this for you and we want to continue doing it for as long as possible but first and foremost Thank you again for all of the listening, all the contributions. And uh, we, uh, we always love to hear from you. So drop us a line. Thank you guys so much. As always, all of our podcast platforms can be accessed via strangersoninternet.com. Again, that's strangersoninternet.com. There's no the in there. And we would love for you to become a part of our online community. If you join the Strangers on the Internet Facebook group or follow us at Swipe Strangers on Twitter, Instagram, Threads, or Mastodon, where we are on the Fostodon server with two S's. I'd like to thank my husband, Carlos Farini, for sound editing, as well as Vlad Kujuku for permission to use his music for this podcast. Bye, everyone. Bye.